Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. The moments, the memories. This is the Heroes of the 500 on 93 WIBC. Here he goes, the final lap. Three wide. Who will make the pass oh, miss? Since 1911, the Indianapolis 500 has provided countless thrills and memorable moments. John Cock, Maris makes a try! John Cock wins it! I lost the one-tenth of a second! Goodyear makes a move! Little Al wins by just a few tenths of a second! Perhaps the closest finish in the history of the Indianapolis 500! But over the years, there have been a few races that fans and participants would just as soon forget about. Well, this has been uh, one of the most uh, disastrous months of May all the way around. 1973 was one of those years. It was a month of May that never seemed to end and that resulted in the tragic loss of two drivers and one crew member and injuries to 11 spectators. It was, you know, if they just said, that's it, uh, you know, uh, right away, then that would have, you know, wouldn't have made anybody unhappy, I don't think. This is Heroes of the 500, Fire and Rain. I'm David Wood. There was tremendous excitement coming into the month of May 1973. Thanks to rules that allowed for bolt-on wings, speeds had increased nearly 30 miles per hour, from a pole speed of 170.221 in 1970 to a chance to see the first 200-mile-per-hour lap just three years later. Gordon Johncock set a new unofficial track record in March with a lap timed at 199.4 miles per hour and eyelash off the magic 200-mile-an-hour barrier. The speeds were a little slower heading into pole day, but John Cox Patrick Racing teammate Swede Savage posted a lap of 197.802 a week before the time trials began. The mood was jovial on pole day, and conditions were right for top speeds. A crowd estimated at 250,000 was on hand expecting to see history made. Unfortunately, just 37 minutes into the morning practice, tragedy struck. WIBC's Lou Palmer filed this report on Saturday, May 12, 1973. For those who may not have been aware earlier, it occurred in practice this morning, a practice period before the qualifications began at 11 o'clock, actually slightly delayed from that point, between 9 and 10.30, the practice time was allowed. And in the middle of that practice period, a car moved into the number one turn and then suddenly darted to the outer retaining wall, bounced, flipped in the air. There was fire. Though he was rushed to the hospital, Art Pollard was pronounced dead this morning at 10.40. A fine competitor, a fine man. Art Pollard, that is the result of injuries suffered in practice this morning at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway.
Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson. Tragically, and on the uh, the first the uh, the practice session of the first qualifying day in 1973, which was uh, just the second year for the big bolt-on wings, and those were scary times because the cars were going way faster than they should have been, and he inexplicably uh, uh, lost control in the first turn on a hot lap uh, shortly before the practice session was going to end, and he, he hit the wall uh, coming out of turn one and uh, was, was, you know, mortally injured, uh, just lived a very short time, and, and, you know, we got the word, I think, like within an hour or two that he had passed away. Art Pollard was a popular driver with fans and his fellow competitors who competed in five Indianapolis 500s, but he may have been most popular with children. In May of 1967, he was approached by Susan Cooper, a recreational therapist, to see if he would visit children at LaRue Carter Hospital. Pollard not only made the visit, he made several, becoming a regular fixture, always bringing stickers for the children and a little bit of extra money for activities. He became so moved by seeing the kids there that uh, he gave the hospital a little, a little money and then uh, there was, he arranged for a picnic. There was a picnic at the track, I believe, or he may have done one at Eagles Creek, as maybe how it started out, and then they decided to do one at the uh, the track, and then uh, the thing kind of took off, and uh, that was that was quite a, a thing, the Art Pollard picnic, and he would go over there, and and a lot of the other drivers, of course, he would be able to, uh, uh, you know, not really strong arm, but he was able to talk them into going over and and uh, making appearances, and he was always very good about things like that. For years after his death, his fellow drivers continued Art Pollard Day in May as a tribute to the fallen star. Despite the sadness over the loss of Pollard, the time trials went on. Swede Savage was the first to set new one- and four-lap records, with one lap over 197 miles per hour and a four-lap average of 196.582 miles per hour. But that record was short-lived. Just over an hour later, Johnny Rutherford took to the track, driving for his new team, McLaren. His M16 was more than up to the task, and Rutherford set new one- and four-lap track records. Lone Star JR's third lap was 199.071 miles per hour, just a little over two-tenths of a second from being a 200-mile-per-hour lap. Rutherford knew he had a quick car from the first time it hit the track. I went out, and uh, the car felt so good uh, that I was able to run it hard through the corners. And I ran the first lap and shaking it down, getting the feel of it. And I then just stood on it. And it's the first time I'd ever been able to drive around the speedway flat-footed, never lift. And we ran, I think, either three or five laps. They brought me in, and we had gone 200 miles an hour. And, and wow, boy, that got everybody's attention. The car was, was that good, you know, and it's a, it, this, the uh, M16 was probably the best flat-bottom car to ever run at the Speedway. It was, it was good, and I was the driver. And, I, you know, that boosted my stock a great deal. And, uh, anyway, we uh, set on the pole for the 73 race. Rutherford had driven for Pat Patrick in the 1972 500, 
and John Cock had run for McLaren. In 1973, they swapped teams, with John Cock now moving to his fellow Michigander Patrick's team. The team picked up STP as a sponsor leading into the month of May, and John Cock liked driving for the sponsor. You know, they were a, a good sponsor and treated me well. And I guess one thing I liked about it is I didn't have to make a lot of appearances. Richard Petty was also sponsored by STP, and and they had him do most of that. He was well-known, better so than me, and they had Richard Petty doing a lot of the appearances, and I didn't really have to do that kind of stuff. I liked to run the race get in my car and drive home or fly one or the other. I had other businesses and go to work at home. John Cock preferred doing his talking with his right foot. And he liked working with master mechanic George Bignotti, who had already won the 500 as a chief mechanic five times by the time John Cock joined the team. I wasn't one to tell the mechanics what to do to the car. Um, I would uh, tell them what the car, how the car was performing, uh, and you know, pushing loose or, or whatever. I would tell them, and they would make the adjustments, and you know, kind of in that way, you, you didn't have no arguments back and forth, what to do. They knew the adjustments to make, and I drove the car, and I think that it's a lot better relationship than than somebody that really, uh, a driver that really knows how or tries to tell them what to put in the car, what half springs or shocks or something. Practice continued following the first weekend of time trials, but was plagued with weather issues. The third day of qualifications was actually delayed due to a tornado warning that emptied the grandstands and didn't allow any cars to qualify. On bump day, Sam Posey found himself on the outside looking in as the final gun went off as George Snyder put A.J. Foyt's backup car in the field. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. The 1973 starting field was nearly nine miles per hour faster than the previous year's field, making the 1973 lineup by far the fastest field in the race's history. The record-breaking lineup was ready to roll, but there would be plenty of challenges and tragedies to come. We have a tremendous crash here, going to the number one turn in the back of the pack, Mike. We'll take it back here once again. We will return with Heroes of the 500, Fire and Rain. This is Heroes of the 500, Fire and Rain. I'm David Wood. This is race day, May the 28th, 1973. The place? The world's greatest race course, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, scene of the running of the 57th annual 500-mile race. Race day 1973 dawned gloomy and wet. Instead of seeing the world's fastest flying start, 
fans waited for the track to dry before finally Tony Holman gave the command for the gentlemen to start their engines just after 3 p.m. The start may have been delayed by just over four hours, but the anticipation for the green flag was still there. Unfortunately, the green was only out for a few seconds before disaster struck again. Now down the main stretch for the world's fastest flying start they come. The green flag is waved and the 1973 Indianapolis 500-mile race is on! Turn number one, Mike Ahern! Yes, and what a battle for the lead! It's Bobby Unser shutting off Johnny Rutherford at the turn, then it's Mark Donahue and Mario Andretti. Unser leads turn two and Howdy Bell. We have a tremendous crash here going to the number one turn in the back of the pack, Mike. We'll take it back here once again. The crash involved 11 cars and critically injured driver Salt Walther. Walther suffered burns and injuries to his hands in the crash and was taken to Methodist Hospital, where he spent several months recovering. But while the accident was being cleaned up, a worrisome sight was seen on the front stretch as an ambulance arrived, not to help additional drivers, but spectators. I was down checking because some ambulances have been on the racetrack, uh, reaching out toward the fence. And it appears that some debris came into the grandstand directly opposite the pylon on the main stretch, and possibly some spectator injuries may have resulted. The crash had ripped open Walther's fuel tanks, sending gallons of flaming methanol into the stands. Eleven spectators were injured, nine requiring hospitalization. Driver David Hobbs, who started 22nd in the race, was highly critical of the start. Well, the first thing that strikes you is how incredible it is that 33 of the supposed drivers, best drivers in the world, can't even drive down the bloody straight. Hobbs would later go on to become one of the world's most respected motor racing commentators. While repairs were made to the catch fencing on the front stretch, rain began to fall again. It's well, this coming is, down hard now. This so. is a real typhoon now. If, oh, is yeah. this good, though? Maybe this is good to get it all out of the way. Well, I'd rather see it this way wow. and get it out of the way rather than sprinkle all afternoon because we will have clear weather after this heavy storm gets by, I understand. But that clear weather never materialized. And for the first time since 1967, fans would have to come back on a second day. Good morning from Indianapolis. This is race day, May 29th, 1973. The place, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, scene of the running of the 57th annual 500 mile race. If those words sound familiar to you, perhaps it's because you heard them before. In fact, just about 24 hours ago, when we took the air yesterday. The fans returned to 16th and Georgetown for the 1973 Indianapolis 500 on Tuesday, May 29th. But so did the rain. Dawn broke with clear skies, but soon gloomy skies returned to the track, and rain began to fall, delaying the planned start of the race. The postponement had a considerable effect on the crowd, which had been nearly 400,000 on Monday but was shaved to about half as many on Tuesday. Speedway officials announced that the race would start from scratch and that the original start on Monday would not count in the standings, except for Salt Walther, who was credited for 33rd place for the second year in a row. All cars involved in the first day accident were allowed to make repairs, so 32 cars were on the grid at 10 a.m. when the command was given for the gentlemen to start their engines. But for the second straight day, the 1973 Indianapolis 500 didn't get very far. Now let's check. See if they go in, see if the pace car 
goes into the pits, and it looks as if it will not go into the pits, so they'll take another time around. Sid, pick him up. Pat Vidan is waving a red flag. The pace car is going around. A red flag is out. A red flag is being waved. Our race authority, Freddie Agabation, will join us for his determination. The cars are slowing down to a stop. A.J. Foyt has to move around the outside of Wally Dallenbach. We saw no accident. Maybe there's some rain out there in the backstretch and sprinkled. That's all I could possibly figure at this time. A light rain began to fall during the second parade lap, and once again the cars were brought back to the main stretch. Shortly after that, the skies opened up again. The umbrellas are up, though, all over the stand area, and these fans are just unbelievable. The ones across the way in these grandstands, some 200,000 strong we can see here, and I know another 50 to 100,000 or more around the grounds in the back stretch and the turn, which we can't see here. After filling for several hours on day one, Sid Collins and the Speedway Radio Network crew were rapidly running out of things to say. Now you can't take fuel out to the racetrack where the cars are positioned at the present time and put fuel in them because it'd be detrimental on an overspill on the asphalt as well for it does uh, take its toll on asphalt. Another thing, uh, the fire marshal of course wouldn't allow it for Fuel tanks are specifically designed for the fueling of these cars, and the attachments uh, are so that uh, you can't put fuel in with a gallon can anyway. It has to be uh, on this aircraft type of quick coupling type of fueling system. But don't, so, don't, don't stop. Them up. <laughs> don't, don't stop. Talk you another hour, tired of talking, <laughs> Just keep talking. <laughs> okay. Collins and the crew did have plenty of time to think about a former member of the broadcast team. You know that probably the happiest fellow in America today? Yes. Len Sutton. Yes, I'll believe it. <laughs> Len and job. Anita are better sitting there with their feet on the ottoman, <laughs> drinking coffee and having sweet rolls in Oregon and figuring, boy, am I glad I'm not in Freddy's user alongside of that Sid. Been with that Sid long enough now. One major issue that was cropping up on the Speedway Radio Network was what to tell the thousands of network affiliates across the country who had cleared out programming to carry the race for the second straight day. Find yourself some cover. We may go off the air for an hour. That's a bit of an advance warning for our stations. Having been in the radio broadcasting business for many years, Jack Morrow, our producer, is really concerned about you. I've known this man a long, long time, and he's extremely conscientious and is worried about your station commitments, knowing that you've lost one day, now you're back on a second day, and he's kind of wringing his hands because as a program director himself and having held down many other jobs in radio for a long time, knows what you're going through. One and a half minutes till 11 o'clock Eastern Standard Time. So you stations, if you will, in your control rooms, monitor us on the 15 minutes. That'll be 11.15 here, 11.30, And we'll plan to be back on the air at 12 noon. That is one hour and one minute and 15 seconds from now. And we hope the weather will have cleared. The weatherman promised clear weather this afternoon. We'll still have the race. So now at exactly one minute until 11 o'clock, this is Sid Collins speaking from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. This is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network. While the delay dragged on, Sid Collins took a rare break, giving Lou Palmer his first opportunity in the chief announcer's chair, a seat he would later occupy for two years in 1988 and 1989. We can only tell you now that they are continuing to circle the track. The fire trucks, the tow trucks, the safety equipment, John DeCamp is continuing to look down and frown at the forecast I forced him to read to you because I would not be bearer of that tidings. 
and to our gentlemen around the track, I do suggest if there is any possible way, uh, make yourself comfortable. We'll talk to you later. We thank Mike Ahern, Ron Carroll, Doug Zink, and we thank thousands and thousands of race fans for remaining here in the stands and waiting for the event along with us. If there is to be no event, there is a phrase that misery loves company, and this is not the most pleasant place at the moment. So we will again, for stations down the line, have advisory information for you regarding programming this day, hopefully still this race today at 1 o'clock, 1.15, 1.30, and 1.40. And then we'll go from there at what may be the greatest spectacle in weather at the moment. At the moment, this is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Network. For the second straight day, rain wiped out the proceedings and the race was postponed until Wednesday. But storm clouds were continuing to gather over the 1973 Indianapolis 500. The red flag is out and the race is being stopped. The red flag is out and the race is being stopped. We will return with Heroes of the 500, Fire and Rain. This is Heroes of the 500, Fire and Rain. I'm David Wood. On Wednesday, May 30th, the atmosphere surrounding the 1973 Indianapolis 500 had turned from anticipation and excitement to glum apprehension. The weather had turned most of the parking areas into muddy swamps, and track crews hadn't been able to clear the facility of chicken bones and trash. The health department was threatening to shut down the event if it needed to be delayed again. Rain once again delayed the start of the race, and only around 50 or 60,000 fans waited in the stands to see if the race would be held. Finally, the track was dried, and the race was hurriedly started just after 2 p.m. The pace car now is moving through the narrow pit entrance. It comes off into the pits. Here they come down the main stretch, the world's fastest flying start. The green flag is waved, and the 1973 Indianapolis 500 race is on. Mike Yes, sir, and it's a replay of Monday up front. Bobby Unser pitches them off at the head. Then it's Mark Donahue, and then it's Mario Andretti. Johnny Rutherford has dropped the fourth. Audi Bell in turn two. We have of our leader is Bobby Unser. He's followed by Mark Donahue, Mario Andretti, Johnny Rutherford, and Sweet Savage. Bobby Unser jumped out to an early lead, followed closely by Gordon Johncock and Johnny Rutherford. But Rutherford's pole-winning car quickly developed a problem. Johnny Rutherford returns to the pits for a long, long day uh, for the pole sitter, a fellow who's never finished a 500-mile race, never gone the whole 200 laps. He finally finished 200 laps at Pocono, Freddie, but that's the only time he's done that. Uh, he comes in 18th, it seems. Seems to be kind of a habit. But Johnny Rutherford, in my opinion, one of the finest fellows in sport of any kind today. Running up front really well and uh, cracked an exhaust header. Well, that for a turbocharged engine, that's that's just, you know, it, it doesn't have any more power. So I came in, they changed the header, and went back out, and we still finished ninth, I think, that year. Unser continued to lead, with Patrick Racing teammates John Cock and Savage challenging. Savage led briefly before pitting on lap 57. On lap 59, Savage was in second place, trailing new leader Al Unser when disaster struck. He hasn't deserted the car yet. They're looking it over. No decision has yet been made, but he's out of the cockpit, unstrapped, standing by it. Mark Donahue, meanwhile, is going very, very slowly, and I think you may have... We have a crack on the fourth turn. Jim, can you see it? The yellow is out. Jim Shelton. It was a violent 
crash with Can't much see. blame, but it's way down the track from me, Sid. I cannot see really who it is. The red flag is out and the race is being stopped. The red flag is out and the race is being stopped. So we'll have to, uh, there's a tremendous flame in the car. Tremendous flame covering the racetrack all the way across. It was one of the most devastating single car crashes in Speedway history. The engine and transaxle bounced end over end toward the pit lane, while Savage, still conscious and strapped in his seat, ended up near the outer wall. Safety crews immediately went to Savage's aid, and tragically, during that rescue effort, another accident would immediately frighten and shock those who saw it in the pits. Some listeners may find the following audio disturbing. And unfortunately, after 59 laps, after a beautiful start and a smooth running race, it is being stopped, has been stopped. And we have fire all the way across. And uh, a man was hit here by an official fire truck. He's directly in front of us, trying to go up the pit area, around the track. And a man was hit. We're not going to try to decide who it was as yet in a pit uniform, and we have a great amount of confusion out here in the pit area waiting for a doctor to arrive. For a pit man, a man in a driver's uniform, but it may be a man from the pit area going out. The ambulance is going up. 22-year-old Armando Tehran was a pit board operator for Savage's teammate Graham McRae. Tehran went into the pit lane just as a fire truck going against the normal flow of traffic in the pits, was racing to the scene of Savage's accident. Tehran was struck so violently by the truck, he was tossed 50 feet and knocked out of his shoes in front of thousands of spectators. While safety trucks were permitted to go the opposite directions under USAC rules, Tehran may not have known the rule, and he was permitted to leave the pit wall under USAC rules as well. The Tehran tragedy happened directly in front of Sid Collins in the Speedway Radio Network booth. And at this point, the usually unflappable voice of the 500 had pretty much had enough. Well, this has been uh, one of the most uh, disastrous months of May all the way around, uh, getting the race underway, getting it started, having a first lap accident yesterday uh, on Monday, unable to start yesterday because of bad weather. Now we've had a man in the pit being hit by an official fire truck and we have fire being put out as the race is stopped in the north end so john if you can you've seen if you can pick up your microphone and give us any reports you have but be, we of course strive for accuracy we'll take our time and be certain that we stay calm back to the number four turn now and jim shelton said we have checked uh, with the safety officials here and they report to us that there was only one car involved that's hard to imagine i guess the rest of them uh, were able to avoid swede savage number four zero Swede Savage was the car involved, according to uh, the officials up here on number four. Savage suffered third-degree burns, but was talking to his crew and rescuers. He was taken to Methodist Hospital in serious condition. Tehran did not survive. Report from uh, two hospital reports, one good and one very bad. Uh, Swede Savage, critical but stable. Uh, facial burns have been reported from the hospital on Sweet Savage. In regard to the pit crew member of Graham McRae's, Armando Tehran, T-E-R-A-N, was 22 years old, 
and he has just passed away at 4.23 p.m. at the Methodist Hospital here. He was struck by an emergency vehicle in the pits, rushing to the accident involving Swede Savage. He ran directly from the grassy area in front of the emergency fire vehicle, and we certainly are very sorrowful to report that to you. Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson. And there were specks of that fluorescent paint all over the place. It, it was just as if somebody had decorated it for a party, which it, it was anything but. But I just remember looking, and there was just these thousands and thousands of fluorescent red specks all over the track. So anyway, it took a while to clean the thing up, and uh, Swede, of course, was... Uh, uh, was was uh, injured severely. Uh, the car, you know, it was one of those things. Those seventy-three eagles, the the engine was actually. Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob two hundred milligrams at kisqali.com. And talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. Uh, I think what did they call it? A stressed member. I mean, so in other words, there was yeah. no frame. You had the, you had the tub and the front wheels and the suspension, and then the engine actually was bolted on to the behind the, the where the driver sat. Uh, so anyway, it, whenever there was a bad accident, it happened several times. The car pit with the driver would one direction, and the engine and the rear wheels w would go in the other. Roger McCluskey was running in the top ten at the time, and he, like the rest of the drivers, wanted to see the race over at that point. Roger, another stop here. I guess it's not going to bother you. You've been waiting for three days now, so I guess another one wouldn't hurt, would it? <laughs> Yeah, it hurt. I just didn't run this little turkey today. <laughs> Everybody else would, but I mean, you've been used to it. And here comes the rain. So with that, uh, uh, maybe we could borrow some of that sunshine from Tucson. Yeah, I hear they've had a lot of it. Maybe we ought to negotiate a switch. <laughs> switch a little rain for a little sun. I'll go for that one. Roger, best of luck to you when the race resumes. Thank you, Bob. Now back to you, Sid. Did I hear him say, here comes the rain, Fred? Tell me. I didn't hear him say that. I heard him say that, unfortunately. I wish you didn't. That's why I've got these cards up here today for us to play poker with or something. Johnny Rutherford says it was very frustrating stopping and starting the race so many times. Oh, we had had so many, so many things and accidents on the front straightaway and all the, you know, things that happened. Uh, yes. It was, you know, if they just said that's it, you know, uh, right away, then that would have, you know, wouldn't have made anybody unhappy, I don't think. With another long delay looming due to track cleanup and rain once again beginning to fall, a noticeably frustrated Sid Collins once again sent programming back to the stations on the Speedway Radio Network. And for you stations on our worldwide radio network, all we can tell you is to monitor your lines in your control rooms. We'll be talking with you, monitor the lines in the control rooms. We'll give you adequate warning of our return to the air. We have no idea whether this will be 15 minutes, one hour, or July. The constant programming changes were taking their toll on network stations, some of which were unprepared to handle the constantly changing circumstances. 
Here, in a rare clip, announcer Ray Willis of KBIG Radio in Los Angeles tries to keep his audience informed and entertained. Once again, Ray Willis here at KBIG reminding you that uh, there has been a delay in the race at Indianapolis 500, which is uh, news that you've heard before. So there has been a temporary delay in the Indianapolis 500. I know you've heard that before, too. So uh, bear with us, if you will. Meanwhile, we'll provide you with some form of entertainment, if we possibly can, in the way of music and Mama Cass. Darkness was creeping over the Indianapolis Motor Speedway again, and the race was not yet official. But it finally was time for a winner to be declared. Harlan Fengler, Chief Steward, says it is the end of the race. So there's something else new this time, Don, you can put in the file. We had the end of the race, and no checkered flag was even waved. We will return with the conclusion of Heroes of the 500, Fire and Rain, after this. This is Heroes of the 500, Fire and Rain. I'm David Wood. After an hour and 11 minute delay for the terrible accident involving Swede Savage, the race resumed. With a high level of attrition and skies once again darkening, the number on everyone's mind wasn't 500. It was 101, the number of laps needed to make the race official. Al Unser had trouble with his engine and dropped out quickly after the restart giving Gordon Johncock a turn at the lead. Well, we see that number 20, Jordan Johncock, is in the lead at 76 laps unofficially. Number two, Bill Vukovic, is running second. Number four, Al Unser on the pylon was third, but I don't think I'll read further down there because that has certainly had to change now with Al Unser in this pit area. The race continued with skies darkening and rain on the way, and Speedway officials were taking no chances. They're putting in the stanchions here for Victory Lane as number 19, Mel Kenyon, goes back out. Victory Lane used to be at the south end of the pit area, now right underneath the master control tower. And I think they're anticipating perhaps uh, rain coming up. We have 96 laps, five more laps to go, and the race may be shortened because of the weather, and I'm sure these officials are hoping they get that other six laps, five or six laps in there. The race did make it to halfway, and more. Bobby Unser's engine blew up at lap 100, taking another serious challenger away from Johncock. Now we have 120 laps with Gordon Johncock in car number 20 still holding on to first place and number two, Bill Vukovic in second. Next time Gordy comes by, let's uh, follow him around just to see if our fellows on the turns uh, can have any observations that might be at all unique about the way he's driving the race. How much can one describe about a car going by, but our fellows do a pretty sensational job. There he is. Mike? Mike, can you pick up Gordy Johncock, number 20? Okay, Sid, he just went by here, uh, driving very smoothly in the groove, but perhaps as important as those 20-some seconds between he and uh, the number two car, Billy Vukovic, and the fact he's got traffic in between him, six or seven cars, so that could be a difficult fight for Vukovic to get through, through all of that. All right, Sid. With only 11 cars left in the race, rain finally began to fall on lap 129, and four laps later, the precipitation brought out another red flag. The red flag is out now. The red flag comes out at 5.32, and the winner will be Gordon Johncock. Moments later, the race was finally called. And uh, Andy Granatelli, who looks like, gosh, this couldn't happen again. I couldn't lose now, could I? As has happened in the past to him. I think the race is, is called now. 
Yeah, they've been. Marlon Fengler, Chief Steward, says it is the end of the race. So there's something else new this time, Don, you can put in the file. We had the end of the race, and no checkered flag was even waved. No checkered flag was actually waved. I did see Pat Vidan reach out and take his black and white checkered umbrella. John Cock had led 64 of the 133 laps, so he knew he was a deserving winner. I know it was only 133 laps or something like that, but I think we had led 70-some laps out of the race. And so, you know, I felt myself that we earned the race. It wasn't a situation where, you know, we were running 10th, 15th or whatever, and the, they stopped the race to rain, and they called it, and you win the race, you know. we. We had been running a, a good laps and leading the race. John Cox says that after everything that had happened during the week, it was good that the race had finally been called. I guess it was good to have it over with because of everything that had happened and all the rain and the delays. And I guess it was good to have it over with instead of continuing on. Who knows how much longer it would have taken to be able to run the race. There was no victory banquet in 1973. John Cock and his team visited Savage in the hospital after the race. And then, instead of being celebrated by his peers at the traditional banquet, got dinner at a downtown fast food restaurant, something that didn't bother the private driver. I never was one that was into that, making appearances and and all that. And, um, it didn't really bother me because, you know, we didn't have the victory banquet and, and stuff like that. The weekend after the race, major changes were announced. The large bolt-on rear wings were drastically reduced in size to slow the cars down, and fuel tanks were reduced from 75 to 40 gallons. In addition, a new rule specifically disallowed crew members responsible for the pit sign, as Tehran was, from leaving their post for the duration of the race. Sadly, the rule changes came too late for the talented Swede Savage, who passed away at Methodist Hospital on July 2, 1973, of complications from his injuries. Savage had suffered serious lung injuries from inhaling flames in the accident. Speedway historian emeritus Donald Davidson. And he survived 33 days, but he was on a machine. And uh, I know that the people went to see him, and, um, uh, and I won't go into too much more with that. But anyway, finally, uh, after 33, di 33 days, he passed away, and it was right around Pocono time. Swede definitely was, uh, as I say, I'll just wind up by saying he was a very intense guy. Um, it, it was it, hard to get him to laugh, but it was it was uh, it was really neat when he did. And uh, I think that had it not been for the accident, he probably would have won a lot of races and maybe the 500. I don't know. For years, fans lamented that John Cock won the race that everyone wanted to forget. But that all changed in 1982 when the veteran driver held off Rick Mears in one of the most dramatic finishes in Indianapolis 500 history. John Cock maintains the lead, the voice of the 500, Paul Page, who's going to win it? Gordon John Cock off the fourth turn, Mears is right behind him. John Cock, Mears makes a try, John Cock wins it by less than one-tenth of a second. 
Thank you for joining us for Heroes of the 500, Fire and Rain. I'm David Wood. We leave you with Sid Collins as he signed off the 1973 Indianapolis 500 broadcast on the Speedway Radio Network. And now this final thought for our winner. If you think you're beaten, you are. If you think you dare not, you don't. If you'd like to win, but you think you can't, it's almost a cinch, you won't. If you think you'll lose, you're lost. We're out in the world, we find. Success begins with a fellow's will. It's all in your state of mind. Life's battles don't always go to the stronger or faster man. But sooner or later, the man who wins is the one who thinks he can. Today, in the case of Gordon Johncock, he thought he could, and he was also stronger and certainly the faster man in his win over the 500. So until next year on Sunday, May 26th, this is Sid Collins wishing you good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon where in the world you are right now. We're here at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the crossroads of America. Bye.